In this episode, I'm joined by Damo Mitchell, author, teacher, and student of the internal arts of Asia, including Tai Chi and Taoist inner alchemy. Damo recounts his childhood of fear, inadequacy, and martial arts, and recalls how his rage, born from childhood trauma, was healed by the direct energetic intervention of a Taoist master. Damo shares his adventures throughout Asia, seeking authentic teachings of inner spiritual alchemy and internal martial arts, baiting teachers into fights to test their skills, and eventually discovering hidden lineages of spiritual and energetic transmission. Damo also explains the Taoist theory of the Dantian, why this crucial idea is so often misunderstood, even by advanced practitioners, and reveals his own encounters with supernatural powers such as electrokinesis and pyrokinesis. So without further ado, Damo Mitchell. Damo Mitchell, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hi, Steve. Thank you for having me on. Well, I'm very pleased to be talking with you today. What a fascinating life and body of work you've had and you've been involved with. And I'm looking forward to, to discussing all that with you today. I'm wondering if first we might talk about your background. You've written on your website, Damo had been born into a family of practitioners. Both of his parents were seekers themselves and the Japanese fighting styles as well as Zen philosophy has helped them in their own lives of personal difficulty. From age four, Damo had been thrown into the martial arts, a scary place of sweating, shouting men and stamping feet. So I'm curious, could you, could you set the scene there? Could you say something about your parents, your upbringing, um, your background and, and so on? Yeah, sure. Um, well, it was a very working class English background, really. So uh, I think my favorite, my, I don't know, I think my parents would be happy with me saying it. Yeah, I mean, they, they started martial arts when I was three or four years old or, or something like that as a way of, um, I don't know, dealing with their own demons, should we say, or something like that. And basically, they couldn't afford a babysitter. So I got dragged along at, uh, when I was a kid. So yeah, that's how I started. There's no great sort of spiritual quest for me, really. The only thing I remember of it was being terrified. I think I still, uh, funny enough, the, the, the one thing I still remember is the smell of, uh, it's like the only thing from that age, the smell of martial arts training halls in the early 80s. They were, they were stinky things, but I remember being very stressed. But yeah, that's where I started. Um, Japanese karate uh, originally, like lots of people did in the 80s in the UK, because that was the most sort of prevalent martial art, really, wasn't it? Karate and judo in the 80s. And then, I don't know, that's where everything unfolded from there uh, as much as anything. And since then, I got uh, hooked by the Chinese martial arts at some stage. And, and then Zen was a, a major part of my life when I was younger, but then ended up just through hmm, circumstance, I suppose meeting al alchemy teachers. So I ended up going down that path. And that's pretty much where I find myself now. Uh, so many years ago now, oh my God, time passes. I headed into Asia to kind of track down what I could for these uh, traditions. And uh, I haven't stopped really. So I'm still there, still here now, still hunting around, trying to root out how these things work. So that's a bit of an overview, really. Mm. You know, there's a, a few aspects of your of your childhood and youth that mm. I found particularly interesting. You, you've written here that throughout your childhood, the discipline of the training helped to a certain degree. But the deep feelings of fear and inadequacy <laughs> he had felt, he being you, of course, were fueled by the difficulty of combative training. 
It was only in his teens that something switched around within him and the arts began to work on a deeper level. And in fact, it was much later than that when you, you turned another point again, but we'll, we'll come to that with the inner training. Um, something you said about your schooling, born with an innate need for knowledge, Damo found the structure of a school education inadequate for his needs, too much of a system of control and too little a vehicle for personal growth. He abandoned conventional education and instead threw himself into a study of the classical martial arts of Asia. I'm wondering if we could go back to that time, that childhood time, in, some, in a bit more detail. Could you paint the picture of what was going on there? What, why were you um, racked with feelings of fear and inadequacy? And how did the martial arts play into that and schooling in general? Uh, well, martial arts, I think the fear and inadequacy was, I think, probably just from being two things. One, being smaller than everybody else. I was very slight when I was younger um, and bullied definitely at school. I was very much picked on. And then I think in some ways exacerbated by being in, in martial arts classes, to be perfectly honest. I've always had a love-hate relationship with martial arts, to be perfectly honest. Um, I still, it depends what day you ask me. Some days I'll be very positive about martial arts training in general. Other days I would advise people against it. I'm very split on that. But I think that um, in, in those days, like back then, there wasn't really much in the way of kids' classes. It didn't really exist. So I went from being um, uh, nervous, fairly frail as a kid, I think, to then being thrown into adult classes, which kind of amplified the nervousness because everybody was like three times my size when you're a, a, a young kid. And I think with regards to school, I think, <laughs> I remember the first day I started, well, I remember not, what was that? Wouldn't have been really young, but I remember one of the years we sort of went back to school and my, my dad had slipped a note into my lunchbox uh, just saying, don't let the bastards get you down, son. And that it was kind of, that was the, my family mentality that you sort of don't trust authority figures or something. So I kind of carried that with me a little bit. So I found school very, very difficult. I almost had to unprogram that in myself, actually. I had to kind of get rid of that lack of trust of authority figures as I got older. But I think that was probably where the majority of my issues with education came from. Also, I was always really fascinated in Greek mythology and, and Shakespeare when I was younger and uh, school, they wanted to talk about things unrelated to those subjects. So I, I, I found it a bit lacking. So school was never really my thing. I used to bunk off and skive as much as I could and skip that. And I was more interested in classics and, and martial arts training, to be honest. More my thing. Hmm. Interesting. Mm. But yeah, martial arts, I, I think that the discipline for martial arts was very good for me especially Japanese martial arts. I remember the first time I walked into Chinese martial arts, I was really confused. I'd gone for the Japanese systems, which was very rigorous. And as I'm sure you know, and I know you have a martial art background and watching what you do, I, I really like your um, uh, somatic approach you put together what you're doing. I was looking at today, very interesting. But I, I'm sure you know the Japanese systems obviously have this, this sort of disciplined, almost militaristic rigor that I actually uh, really benefited from. And I think a lot of people would benefit from in some ways, but then going into the Chinese martial arts, I remember my first class, they all stopped to drink tea halfway through and I was really confused, but I, I, I liked the, uh, the mental qualities that carried over from there. But I don't necessarily think martial arts were particularly good at dealing with, certainly not the fears I had. Um, and I would argue that maybe not a lot of people that I've seen in the martial arts uh, helped in that particular aspect either in theory they should do but uh, I think that depends very much on what the ethos of the martial art you're doing is or within the class or organization you are. I think sometimes martial arts can exacerbate it and make it worse and that's why I have a 
a funny relationship with them as a system, which I know is horribly ironic, hypocritical. I don't know what the word is because I teach martial arts myself, but uh, yeah, I'm aware of their downfalls, <laughs> their shortcomings. Yes, perhaps not hypocritical, maybe nuanced. Yeah, perhaps, yeah, perhaps, yes, yeah. When, when, when we catch you on a positive day versus when we catch you on a, on a day where you're not recommending martial arts, what, if those two demos sit down, yes. what, are they, what are they going to be saying to each other? Uh, I think they would be arguing over the, uh, or, or discussing the, the difference in the emphasis of the training. I think that uh, the constant obsession, it's a balance, isn't it? I mean, a constant obsession with violence is obviously not healthy for anybody. I really don't think so. And I think that's, doesn't even really need exploring as an idea really does it martial arts obviously have that within them so i think they have the potential to build in some people a kind of paranoia and sometimes they serve as a kind of sticky plaster over the original issue but never really deal with it but then on the other hand if someone can engage with it uh effectively shall we say or, or maybe how they were supposed to be uh, at one stage in their history then obviously they should be able to overcome that obsession with violence so i guess on days that I'm not so positive about it, it's probably because, <laughs> this is going to sound really damning, yeah, it's probably because I've interacted with a large degree of the martial arts community, and it probably um, puts me off a little bit. It puts me off a little bit with where I've seen martial arts go. I know that's going to sound horribly damning. I don't mean to, but I think that's probably a large part of it. When I sort of keep myself to myself and uh, just train within my school and everything, then it's all good. It's all good. You know? One of the um, paradigm shifts, uh, watershed moments, we could say in martial arts, at least in, in the UK and America and, and so on, was, of course, the split between the traditional martial arts approaches and uh, it's often said ushered in by you know, UFC, etc. More, more combative, um, more sport-oriented, um, you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, um, Muay Thai, etc. It's a bit of a cliche to say, but the, the story goes that well, people have been doing these traditional martial arts, which were not as effective as this new, you know, mixed martial arts approach. And yes. the traditional arts since then have sometimes been, by some people, looked on as a little bit like a cosplay or a little bit of um, kind of, you know, so part, part of its, its lack of effectiveness is it's the need to suspend yes. the, the implications of its not being very effective. Um, yes, now, yes. I'm not saying that's my view, but do you, what do you think? What do you think about that? And you know, you've gone into the traditional arts um, yes. in in the places in which they're practiced still very traditionally in the source cultures, and and you've gone extremely deeply into them. And I know you're very keen on effectiveness, not only of fighting techniques, but of of, of the other of the other systems that you study. What do you think of that issue that I'm rather unskillfully trying to bring up? No, no, no. I think no, I think you very skillfully put it. I think that's a really good question to explore, actually. I, I mean, I, I agree, actually, with that stance. My view of the, the traditional versus the modern take UFC, MMA, things like this. I'm actually a big fan of uh, UFC, funnily enough. It, it's not, um, I go to see them uh, in America when I'm there, see the events and things like that. I've boxed and grappled myself and, and things in, in more, what would you say, Western and modern systems. But um, it's actually the Eastern martial arts, I think, are more problematic, to be perfectly honest, with regards to what they can do for you mentally, which come back to it in a minute if you want and I'll, I'll explain why I think that but I think that the I think that divide between practical and what do we say 
like self-developmental traditional version of martial arts. I think that split already occurred a long way in the past anyway, long before the existence of, of USC. Because I mean, martial arts, I would assume developed the first time somebody picked up a stick and hit someone else over the head with it thousands of years ago. And then gradually they <laughs> worked out that efficient way to do it. And then a martial art kind of sprang out of it. So originally they must've been for combat and were, must've been brutal. But I think what changed is well, probably Shaolin. I think by the time monks got hold of it and, and adjusted, and there's a whole um, set of theories around what happens there at, at, with regards to the Eastern sort of martial arts when it got mixed with spirituality. But I think at that stage, obviously, that was probably the first divide between spiritual or self-developmental practice and practical combat. Because no matter how many times I, I read it about how the, the combative monks in ancient times were you know, interested in fighting. I mean, my experience of monks is they're not normally that interested in fighting. It's, it's not normally their sort of um, main focus. So therefore they were using it for something else, I think. So I think you already had that split right back then anyway, within the arts. So in some ways, I think almost, if I've explained this ago, history has kind of gone full circle and we've come back to that point where you have another split off between traditional and, and modern martial arts a little bit. Definitely modern martial arts are more effective for fighting and I'm <laughs> probably going to get tomatoes thrown at me by traditional martial artists everywhere. Um, but they are, I mean, they, they threw out everything that wasn't necessary to defeat the other person, um, which, you know, I mean, if you're going to box, you're going to wrestle. I mean, really in boxing, you've got a, a small handful of strikes that are then buried um, a little bit, but only you've got a jab and a cross and a hook and a big hard, okay, fair enough. Throws, you've got a few standard throws that are then deviated from one another, very few techniques. But then in Chinese martial arts, you've got like 55,000 different ways to move your arms and legs and hips. So obviously the sheer volume of techniques amongst anything else, even if you ignore anything else, is gonna make them less functional uh, for combat, just sort of the, the way they're sort of extrapolated out all of these techniques. So I think to deny that the modern martial arts are more effective, UFC, MMA, um, is almost a bit of a nonsense, to be honest. But that's their aim. You know, that's what they're after. They're after practicality, where lots of the Chinese arts and Japanese arts have their whole integration with either Zen or Chan, or to a lesser extent, Taoism, actually. But Zen and Chan very much that kind of cultivational mindset. So they're going to be orientated very much towards that side of the, of the training. The reason I think that Chinese martial arts are a problem compared to Western martial arts uh, for what they do for you is I think very much, say you're in a boxing gym or a wrestling gym, or you're on the floor doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu or something, you're generally out with your mind. Usually you're, you're doing something with your body and you're kind of out here and expressing yourself, which I think is really, really healthy. Whereas I think often with Eastern martial arts, especially with uh, some of the more complex ones or the internal arts like Taiji Bagua or some of the Shaolin systems, your insight, like there's far more integration between mind and body. And I think when you have your mind inside, then whatever mental quality you are expressing at that time gets transferred into your body a lot more and hardwired into your nervous systems. You kind of get a feedback loop between the mind and the body. So I think a part of the risk with Eastern martial arts, if they're not done in a certain way, then your paranoias, your fears, your insecurities kind of get deeper and deeper hardwired into your system. And then in order to kind of tackle those, 
that effect of hardwiring your insecurities and you kind of have to lie to yourself so then this kind of fantasy kind of pops up as well doesn't it and this might be where you could call that what psychological cosplay <laughs> kind of pretending you know 35 ways to kill a man or something with one finger or these rather odd things for an adult to focus on kind of pop up within people so i think that is a, a major part of the problem with eastern martial arts which is why i have a love-hate relationship with them so i very much when i teach them what you can never do is do your best to try to tackle these things is all of the martial arts training anytime the mind is inside there's almost an equal amount of time spending spent on going okay well you're going to put your mind in your body whatever your mind is concerned with whatever the quality is going to get hardwired into you so we need to develop the correct mental qualities at the same time. So there is more of a neutrality towards the violence or the excitement or the competitiveness or the whatever it is so that your art makes you evolve in a healthy direction rather than towards one of those guys that harps on about street defense and attackers jumping out of dark alleys when they're in their 50s or, or something, you know. I think that any art where you put your mind inside your body has the potential to be good for you or terrible for you. And I think that's what we need to be aware of. What do you think? You practice similar things, I think, with our um, somatic kind of training must uh, have an aspect of this. Well, I think confusion about purpose is a uh, is relevant factor to consider. Hmm. Um, what are we talking about here? Well, classically, or often it's said fighting, health, well-being, and spiritual. This is a common divide one hears. Some martial arts systems, um, the way they're taught, let's, some teachers of certain systems, I think there's a confusion about that. People go to karate class and think that they can handle themselves better after having been to karate class than beforehand. And that's maybe the case marginally, but probably not in a lot of, depending on how it's trained. Of course, there's very combat effective, you know, karate. That's, that's not, that is true. But this confusion or this justification of the um, lack of, um, effectiveness, combat effectiveness, by saying yes, but it's developing, you know, inner qualities, which are vague and ill-defined and, and are, are in a way not really dealt with very well, means it's, it's not good for anything. That yep. being said, I was lucky in my childhood, my childhood teachers did not emphasize effectiveness of fighting over, say, boxing or grappling or something like that. They were strong on the mental development. They were strong on that. And they, they, everything was within that context. The physical training was an, a, a means of mind training and of spirit cultivation, the sort of thing you hear, isn't it? Spirit cultivation, the sort of thing that's said in those kind of, um, perhaps somewhat vague, but as a child, as a you know, young, young child, I found that to be very, very powerful. I understood that the way I use my body, the discipline of the use of the body, the feeling and connection to the body is, is actually a tremendous route, especially for someone like me who's a rather physical person. A tremendous route to the emotions, to the psychology, um, you know, and perhaps even to spiritual, uh, you know, progression, whatever that might mean. So I, I found it very useful in, in, in that route. But I think often there's such a confusion about that. Uh, what is it? Are we fighting here? Are we, you know, becoming better people? Are we learning how to stand in a line and bow at the same time? What, what, are, we, what are we doing here? That confusion, I think. It make, means, makes it an unnecessarily impotent, it makes these systems unnecessarily impotent, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with that completely. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe, maybe if you, uh, from that view, maybe you can understand a little of my frustration with martial arts a tiny bit as uh, systems. 
you know so a lot of my work has been tried to steer that in the right direction and try to give the martial arts training that we're doing like very clear goals it is about this and there is a practical side to it of course because i also think that uh it's not the worst thing in the world to sometimes be able to throw a good punch if you need it especially if you're going to go out into parts of the world that aren't that safe um but aside from that the vast majority of what i do is about integration of mind into body and then correct mental qualities passed over into the body, mostly for what that does for Nagong training. So it's always a precursor to the Nagong training for me. As a foundation, I think it's great. Yes, perhaps especially for that young age. Um, you know, someone like Jeff Thompson, who I'm sure you know who that is, karate, oh, yeah. traditional karate background to quite a high level, went mm -hmm. on the doors in Coventry and discovered that his, um, I think he was second down at the time, if I recall correctly, I might be wrong, but his training, his karate training, he found it to be ineffective and he had to radically reassess um, yeah. his, uh, his, his technique set and really boil it down. And he went in a very interesting direction of radical reality and real paring down uh, yes. approach in his own way, which it turns out he found to be a, a portal to uh, <laughs> quite a profound, um, spiritual psychological uh, yes. uh process for him actually it seems that his route to that mental and spiritual training actually went through combat effectiveness yes, and rec yes. reckoning with combat effectiveness what do you think about that route this uh, route of radical combat effectiveness as a means of spiritual or or psychological development a la jeff thompson yeah completely i think that there's two things there i mean the first part of it to me would be maybe a part of the spiritual progression came to do with um, stripping away everything that was inefficient and finding a purely mentally clean path through something towards a particular goal, which I think can be very good because if you take a very messy system and then turn it into something that is very direct, that quality can pass over to lots of other aspects of the way you view life and view yourself. And then I think the other part of it is, um, I mean, the more competent you become at violence, the more comfortable you become with violence until eventually you can override fears around such things. And then it's not long before that mental quality passes over into pretty much any stressor that you encounter in life as well. So it does center you. I mean, most of human interactions for people that are, what should we say, struggling or whatever, most of it's down to fear of some sort, fear of this, fear of another person, fear of not having enough, fear of not being enough or whatever it is and blah, blah, blah. And I think that combat is kind of the extreme kind of metaphor of overcoming that but in order to do that you, you would have to be so competent at the combat that you could you know neutralize that fear that you had of other people or at least neutralize the fear if you had of receiving damage i would say potentially but yeah i think jeff thompson would be a good example of that i'm not sure that i would advise working on the doors as a spiritual path for most people but he might have had that particular temperament and needed that uh, and he did that kind of training rule individual. Well, yes, an interesting part of his story, which I wouldn't say parallels yours, but reminded me a little bit, was when you began with Nunegong training, you learned to drop a certain amount of, of rage, aggression, and inner conflict uh, through a process which I'd love to discuss a little bit later when we get to that point. Jeff Thompson also, it seems, had a tremendous violence in him coming from, you know, he, he, he traces it to um, sexual abuse in his teens by uh, 
martial arts teacher. He also had to heal that and, and drop that and move beyond that. Uh, he didn't use Nei Gong for that, but that's, that's sort of an intractable wound. It seems to me intractable. Evidently, it's tractable. You found it to be tractable. That, I think, is perhaps... We talk about city later as well, but I think that's quite a remarkable city if you can pull something like that off. I think I think a lot of people have a very similar wound, maybe not from sexual assault or something like that. But I certainly think, um, well, I can speak for myself. Certainly the people I hang around with when I was younger, there was a, a huge trauma or fear that was left over from, uh, well, I think nervousness of others. I think most males, I can't speak for women, don't have direct experience, but certainly most males at some point encounter nervousness of other males and if you fought at a young age then you're going to have some kind of wound around there so i think there's a lot of insecurity and i think generally that gets masked with anger or rage that kind of powerlessness comes out as that i definitely had a lot of that i was very furious at everything now when i think back about it, it seems kind of stupid but uh, i was definitely in a rage at the entire planet um it's like i just wanted to tear it all down so for me, yeah, overcoming um, overcoming that was the big turning point. You know, that was when I went from hobbyist, shall we say, or something that I was doing in the evenings to, okay, right, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. That was my turning point, yeah. And I can't say that all rage was completely dropped, but there's definitely there was a major turning point at that stage. But I can't claim credit for it because somebody did it for me. So I will forever be grateful for that, but I, I received assistance on that. I wish I could take credit <laughs> for my own achievement. Oh, now I'm even more interested. Well, well that's coming up, I think. So <laughs> something else we should touch on in, in your youth was you found yourself accidentally entering into meditative states as a child. And you, you write that this yeah. is what first drew your mind onto the path, which you've described as glimpsing behind the curtain. These early experiences were lost to you. Um, later yeah. on and you write here as as his mind played out an internal battle between what he intuitively knew he should do and the conflicting states his heart gravitated towards yeah that's right uh when i was really young crazy young when i think about it but maybe uh, similar things happen to to many kids i i had experiences of what i know now were meditative states but yeah they definitely disappeared all through my teens <laughs> early 20s and things like that um, but then, yeah, through training, managed to get back to them. I, I think that obviously um, Cesar is a large part of Japanese martial arts, which is almost like a cursory nod to Zen meditation, you know. And I remember people going to see Japanese masters, Anoida or Oto or whatever. He would go to these seminars and, uh, you know, crazy seminars, 500 people there or something. You could just about see the teacher in a white uniform to the front or something. So I don't, I just remember a mass of people rather than the, the master, you know. But uh, I remember even doing the Cesar for like two minutes, three minutes, whatever it was. Might not even have been that long in those days when people sat. It grabbed me. Like it was, that was the bit that interested me, even from five years old, six years old, like really early stages. I remember wanting to do that longer. So I, <laughs> I used to hassle my parents and uh, teachers about Zen because I wanted to understand it. So I would get hold of books about in those days, there wasn't very many detailed books, let's be honest, but books about sort of Zen masters meditating and things. And then I, so I would, I would pester them. And I would say in the early 80s, the knowledge was basic. I think that's fair to say. It takes a while for knowledge to filter from one part of the world to the other pre-internet. 
wasn't awesome, the, the knowledge, but it was enough to start. So I used to, it's going to sound stupid now, but I devised my own meditation system as a small kid, um, which I could share, but it's a bit stupid. And then I would uh, use this to try to engage with it. So yeah, I would move towards what I would kind of equate with borderline jhanic states when I was a, a small kid. But then as I got older, yeah, I lost it, uh, of course, as we do, and um, got very much embroiled in the combative side of things, and that disappeared. And and then, yeah, when I when I found my first proper meditation teacher, then it started to come back uh, from there. But yeah, my method was, uh, <laughs> I had a Bugs Bunny doll that was uh, the same height as me, because I was very small. So I'd make a cave with Bugs Bunny and put a blanket over it before I went to bed and put my head in this kind of makeshift cave and I discovered that if I shut my eyes and went towards the light that appeared, that I could enter through the meter into a, into a space. It just became a game. So I remember telling my parents that I used to go to space every night before I went to sleep. And they misunderstood. They thought it was like an imagination thing, but I was, I was in space as far as I was concerned. So they, uh, I remember them decorating my bedroom like a space station. They didn't really get what I was sort of getting at, really. But yeah, that was, you know, that was what grabbed me from when I was young, that you could and do these strange things with your mind you know? so yeah just came from uh, basic cesar training really the only thing i've ever had any maybe natural propensity for no coordination uh physical genetics aren't awesome not you know but whatever that was the only thing that maybe i had a little bit of a knack for when i was mm. younger mm. i was a clumsy goof other than that <laughs> mm. And have you rediscovered that knack since reconnecting it through various methods? Did you find that when you found it again, the knack, the knack was still there? No, 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 I would have to struggle and push <laughs> and work. I, I, I needed to use discipline rather than naturally go into, you know, some people, I don't know what kind of a practitioner you are, but obviously I know meditation is a large part of your life. Some people find that I, I think you can divide I have theories on meditation on, on why this is, but I think that people you can divide into two groups. There's those that just can kind of release into the correct space, especially when they've got some mental qualities. I'm very envious of those people, but that wasn't me. I had to use discipline and rigor and drive in order to get my mind back towards that, that place. And uh, it's one thing I noticed that it, I think that often meditation groups, there's not enough recognition that both these paths are valid and that actually they suit different people a little bit, but I had to use that. But eventually got it back, but I didn't use Bugs Bunny anymore. I used the uh, traditional Buddhist methods at first from Theravada and Cham Buddhism. And then eventually alchemy suited me because it had a, a more, certainly for someone of my temperament, a body-based way to get back into that, that space, you know? And that's, that's my main practice these days, really. Yes. After that time, you left school and, and you started traveling throughout Asia, um, from what I understand, and you, you studied many, many systems. You also fo followed many dead ends, uh, you've said um, quite humorously. And, and you, you, know, you said you, you traveled extensively and studied and continued to, you know, with many underground masters of various styles, etc. Can you take us through that time? So you leave, you leave school. Can you take us on that journey with young Demo? Yeah, sure. I mean, I left, I left school. Um, I didn't travel straight away after school because I had no money, basically, and not through Asia. So I started traveling into Europe, uh, trying to encounter whatever Chinese families or Japanese families I could at the time. 
Um, and then by the time I got to my, where would that be? Right at the start of my 20s, early 20s. Yeah, I guess then time flies. Uh, that's when I managed to get together enough cash through doing some horrible jobs uh, to get out to Thailand. And the, the funny thing was uh, I went out there and uh, I said, right, I'll stay for six months. And uh, well, it's nearly 20 years later and I'm still going, but it, it just kept extending, kept extending because that's it. it's like anything, isn't it? Once you get your foot in the door and you meet someone, then you meet someone and you think, oh, well, I'd always go, well, I've been with this, this guy and then I'll see where he takes me. And then he introduces somewhere else and then you look around and then you're just full time traveling through Asia. Really. So yeah, that's what I've been doing. So I went all through Southeast Asia, India, China, um, went to every province in China apart from one in the end, um, which I still plan to get to at some stage, but I have uh, visa restrictions for China because I cause travel out there. So I don't know if I'll, how easily I'll manage that. And then ended up finding that most of the stuff I was looking for was in Southeast Asia these days. I think certainly after the Cultural Revolution, Chinese arts were preserved a lot better in uh, this part of the world. Hence the reason I'm here now. So I can carry on going to see people. But yeah, tons of dead ends. Dead ends were always for two reasons. Uh, one, you don't have discernment when you start out. I think discernment for a practitioner is something you have to learn. I don't think you're born with, or maybe some people are, but definitely not me. So I had to kind of learn that uh, very much. And if you don't have discernment, then you're going on hearsay. And hearsay is never a great way to study, um, I don't believe. So I, I would go to the famous teachers, shall we say, or the ones that were more well known. And then if I do something, I'm very, very dedicated. So I would spend a lot of time with those people. And then only after quite a length of time would you realize, oh, actually, this is not really where I'm supposed to be, or you get to know the teacher well enough to see that they're not really embodying what you're looking for. And the implication to me would be, well, if they're not embodying that, that means they haven't done it. So therefore I'm not sure they can teach it. So there was lots of that kind of stuff um, for me. And then eventually, I guess I got my foot in the door for some of the underground is fair to say, uh, some of the lines that were a bit more interesting. So especially Chinese arts, I mean, Chinese arts have this, I hope this isn't racist, but this very frustrating habit of loving secrecy, maybe maybe more so than anything else, more so than I found with Indian traditions or um, just sort of through Nepal and stuff that were actually far more open. But Chinese, Chinese secrecy is like an absolutely major thing. And that's an added level of complexity with Chinese art. So what it actually means is quite a lot of the teachers are quite underground. They're, they're sort of... Um, it's almost like moving your way through a kind of secret society. If you get to a certain teacher, I'll introduce you to someone else. And part of me finds that very frustrating. But then now I've penetrated through that barrier. Actually, I don't mind it too much, but I do remember the frustration at the beginning <laughs> of it. Mm. Most of the teachers that are interesting in Chinese arts, in my opinion, are pretty under the radar with the exception of one or two. Yeah. Can you think of a representative example of a dead end that you sunk a lot of time into and then began to realize this might be a dead end despite the sunk cost? Some of the dead ends were because I think the Cultural Revolution in China and also some of the cultural revolutions they had before that had a much greater impact on the traditions I was interested in than, than maybe even we realize these days. So a lot of the traditions kind of lost their teeth a little bit. Um, so lots of dead ends there. And I think that the other thing I was looking for was 
martial arts. And I became very frustrated at internal martial arts, especially because quite a lot of those lines without naming them were also dead ends for me with regards to what they could do, especially because I was very interested in internal force at the time, not for hurting people, but I was fascinated by this weird ability that you could produce from things like Tai Chi or, or Bagua or seemingly, supposedly. I mean, at that time, I was still torn as to whether it was real or false or students going with it, or is there something going on or is it a very complex, I was, I was still muddling through that. Um, so I wanted to understand that. Didn't even want to master it particularly, I just wanted to understand it. Um, so there was lots of dead ends there trying to <laughs> pursue that route. Lots of stories um, that I'm a little embarrassed by these days of uh, deliberately provoking teachers till they hit me and seniors and things like this so I could sort of experience that power or whatever. I wasn't always the most respectful student, certainly not when I was in my 20s. I think that's fair to say. I got thrown out of quite a lot of lineages, actually, a few schools I got chucked out of um, just by being a bit of an ass, the kind of student I personally would hate. But I, I wanted to understand they were. So lots of dead ends there, um, I would say. And all of the famous lines uh, I found to be limited. I found to be limited. But that's part of the journey too, isn't it? You, know, you have to go down these dead ends and find out that the, the person that you're admiring and you're trying to learn off actually has these deep kind of rooted thoughts in themselves that you find uninspiring. But I think that's a part of the exploration as well. Certainly for me, it shake me out of the guru complex to realize that human beings are still flawed no matter how good they are at the arts. You know, So I, I, I don't moan about those dead ends particularly. Mm. How would you bait someone into hitting you? What, what were some of your methods? <laughs> uh, when I partnered with their seniors, I would be a little head more heavy-handed than them because I think one thing I had done a fair bit of was heavy-handed training, which I was quite used to from grappling and uh, lots of boxing in my family and things like that. So, you know, that kind of stuff. So I'd be quite heavy-handed to kind of get them going a little bit. And then anytime they mention any kind of internal force, I would sort of bait them into to, to hitting me. I got in quite a few scraps with uh, challenges of students in parks and things like that uh, to, to experience it and, and found out that, yeah, most of it's nonsense. Yeah, the vast majority of it <laughs> really is nonsense. But I needed that exploration because I wasn't happy to take the word of other people on, on what was real and what wasn't. From the outsider view, these sorts of displays of force, fudging, etc. cetera, um, uh, you see these videos of somebody doing a kind of some sort sure. of movement and the person flies across the room and yeah. you know, um, that's the sort of thing you were trying to figure out. Is this real or is this, is this hypnosis, group hypnosis, or is it compliant partners? What's going on here? You're saying most of it's nonsense, which implies that some of it isn't. So how right. did you figure that? Because there are many different explanations. Oh, it's, you know, it's force. It's just sheer chi power. It's recruiting the body in a structural way. Uh, there's all these sorts of things. How were you convinced that there is are there there, even if it's a small amount, a small proportion of what's out there? Um, yeah, before I answer that, I should say that for all of the skills, my experience, whatever the skill is, the city or the fudging or, you know, so like all the things people talk about, it's all real in a very small percentage. So for, for everyone that's real, for some reason, there seems to be about 10, 20 that are fake. So, it, or, or half real, you know, there's a gray area in the middle as well. So I think these kind of things get a bad name because most people 
uh, statistically, percentage-wise, will encounter the stuff that's not real. So therefore, once that is your direct experience of it, that's what you're going to think everything is. And I fell into that trap too. But then eventually, um, you do find actually, no, these things are real. So you asked me, how did I find it was real? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm not a stooge. I'm not easy to work with. Hypnotists always hate me. A couple of times I've been chosen for stage and it doesn't, you know, I'm just one of those guys that doesn't work on, which I'm really disappointed by. I'd love to pretend to be a chicken and wander around on the stage, but it just doesn't seem to work on me. Um, and I'm not an easy partner for fudging or partner work anyway. I'm a bit of a nightmare with regards to that. I'm a bit of a brick when people try to do it on me. So first of all, experiencing it directly on myself whilst being very, very um, unhelpful, shall we say, for it. Um, and the second, learning to do it myself. I mean, sometimes the most direct way to learn if something is real is to do it yourself. But even then, you still have to double check and triple check. But the answer, fudging is an interesting one. You know, fudging is, uh, if the truth about fudging is so controversial, um, because both camps, in my opinion, are not quite telling the truth or not quite right. The truth is somewhere in the middle. It's not hypnosis, no, but certain conditions are required in order for the result to occur for Fajin. And what are those conditions? Um, well, first of all, the practitioner has to be able to move in a certain way. So it's not really to do with chi in the sense of, you know, stricter sense of energy. We could use the term chi to discuss many different processes in the body, but your internal mechanism, meaning everything that's not bone or contractive muscle that causes leverage, we could say all of that stuff has to be mobilized in a very particular way and the nervous system has to be lined up in a particular way. So the teacher will need that. Um, but then with regards to the purple people that you're working in, depending on what state their body is in, not their mind so much, but their body, you will get different results. So if, for example, someone has built a lot of springs in their body from doing, um, well, a lot of martial arts, really, especially if they've done lots of up and down movements or things like this, then what happens is when you touch into their nervous system, there's a contraction of their muscles that happens um, without their choice, really. It's against their will. It contracts and releases, and the result is a bounce, right? So that the bounce comes from contract release. That seems to be a, just a, an occurrence when these two sets of conditions touch each other. But if someone hasn't built those springs into the body, you don't get the bounce. Instead, what you get is a very solid kind of shape from the other person that stumbles about or something. And if somebody has trained their body in another way, like maybe a sportsman or something like that, or a weightlifter bodybuilder or something, you don't get the same result. What you tend to find is you just kind of negate their strengths. So you end up much stronger than they are. So generally, I think if you tell the truth about Fajin, if you, if you do it on three different people, you get three different sets of results. So it's all about what happens when two sets of conditions touch each other. Um, so that's what I was trying to understand. And for me, that personally doesn't make the phenomena any less interesting than when I first started studying it, because I didn't need it to be the ultimate weapon. I just needed to understand what it was. And it is very fascinating, um, the way that human bodies interact with one another. It's super cool. Mm -hmm. you know? And certainly an important part of Tai Chi, which is the martial art that I'm most interested in these days. Right. And so in that Sorry process, <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry about the long answer. I apologize. No, long answers is good. I ask the questions you answer at length. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's great.
Very, it's very, very fascinating. It's cool to uh, quiz you on these things. You mentioned Tai Chi. I don't know if that was the gateway or, or at least part of a transition period when you moved away from these external arts um, yeah. into the internal, into spirituality, also also into medicine. I know you run an acupuncture college, etc. So this sort of sh this shift into this. You write here, the external system started to fall away with regards to their importance and the internal arts came to the fore. A number of chance encounters with great masters helped to dissolve the last part of his nature that liked destruction and conflict. And for the first time, Demo experienced the fully transformative potential of classical training. So this is very fascinating. Can you talk about this pivot from the external to the internal? And also, you, you mentioned before that someone did it for you. Someone helped you release that, heal that wound or release that, that hold inside. Can you also tell that story? Yeah, completely. Um, my my uncle, um, right from when I was young, was uh, well. His his path went. Let me get this right. Boxing, and then kendo and um, iaido through into tai chi. Yes, probably with some karate in there too. But I don't know. That was his path when I was younger. But I wasn't living that close to my uncle um, when I was very very young. So in my teenage years, I kind of reconnected with him. So from there, because I was with my parents doing. Uh, external arts. So then I, I kind of shifted into his Tai Chi practice as well as some Tai Chi that my, my dad was doing at the time. So it was a kind of shared effort by the family, if you like, to try to research these arts. And my uncle had made contact with the first true master of, of internal energies or internal practice that I ever met, which was Shen Hongzun. So I, I trained with him uh, for quite a number of years, quite a number of years up until his uh, death. And, but he, he became a kind of springboard for me because then I went on and tried to find these guys in Asia. I wanted someone that was level with his skill, but in some ways that's a problem. If you meet someone very good, very young, and then you don't have that person anymore, I, it's, you're always judging every other teacher by that teacher again. And Shen Hongzun was a very controversial teacher. I don't know if you've heard of him. He was a very controversial Qigong and Tai Chi teacher that um, people are really divided on him over whether he was good or not, but his skill level was incredible. It was very, very high. So the first time I met him, he was also a Chinese medicine doctor and things like this. And I was just a dumb kid on his course, like everybody else was way older than me. Um, so I remember turning up and he stood me in a position. And then the first thing, one of the first things, I think you probably said hello, but one of the first things he said to me was, that he'd never met anyone with so much anger as I had. And I was like, all right, <laughs> that's not the greatest compliment I've ever had from this guy that I've come to see. Um, so he started the, uh, a process, which is kind of like, a, you know, I guess like chi healing or something like this, people would normally know it as, but by using that term, it sounds very woolly, but he was just, just pulled. And it was the first time I'd ever really experienced that, that my body just erupted into heat and started sweating and shaking. And I just entered into this massive rage. I remember having to leave the hall and uh, basically go and smash up a toilet, which is not the best thing to do when you've gone and attended a workshop, had you, but I, I lost it. I completely lost it. And I remember sort of going out afterwards onto the playing field near the hall and just walking around really fast thinking, I can't go back in that room. I've, I've never been so angry in my life for no reason whatsoever. Just some old Chinese guy waved his arm around me. Um, and then after that, it was all gone. It was just, it was just like a pump, like a stopper just taken out of my system. 
And I think that was the beginning of me. Two things. One, really calming down. That was good. And secondly, also suddenly realizing there was a whole dimension to this practice that I hadn't encountered through uh, martial arts prior to this, you know, that uh, through non-contact and the chi was a real concept and that there was a whole esoteric side to the practice and an emotional side to it. So I think that was a turning point for me to suddenly go, okay, well, maybe the internal arts are <laughs> what I need to study rather than keep hitting people. So that was that. I stayed with Shen Hongzun for yeah, quite a number of years after that, but uh, he wasn't my main teacher. Wang Haitao was the person who became my main teacher when I transferred over. But Shen was definitely very, very pivotal in my moving into internal arts. I'll always be very grateful to him for that. Looking back with what you know now, what did he do to you? Um, well, I mean, he, that's a funny one, isn't it? Because they'll all have their own conceptual model. Of course, they would have the way they explain it. I would have the way I explain it. According to their explanation, then he would have drawn what they call shiiti out of the, the body, as in the pathogenic energy out of the body. Because the view in sort of Qigong terminology would be that all emotions generate a particular kind of energy that stores in the body. I mean, acupuncture is based on this kind of concept. Um, but to me, I don't really think it's that. I think after many years of doing this, I think that people can generate a certain degree of magnetic or electrical field or discharge from their hands. And I think that your nervous system and your brain are largely electrical and magnetic. So they have an ability to, uh, well, so do I to a certain extent these days to reset and release those patterns in your body. So largely it's the nerves. So part of the reason why you get really hot when it comes out, which is almost always the case, is I just think of it like too much electricity going into a kind of cheap electrical circuit. And all of a sudden all that resistance produces all that heat and then the nerves let go. And then I think that resets a lot of what goes on in your mind. So in my opinion, that's how it works, or in my experience. But of course, Chinese model would just be bad chi comes out, you feel better. You know, Who's to say whether the conceptual model or the more accurate one is more helpful? To me, it doesn't matter. It's just a language thing. But that's certainly what he did to me, yeah. I mean, I came up in a rash, like it was physical. Like it, red bumps came up my neck and all up my face. and space of like 30 seconds it looked like sort of rolled around in poison ivy or something like that it was a very strange day trauma and patterns ingrained patterns of trauma and and so on often um wind themselves it's it's said sometimes into the personality um oh, yeah. so that to take out the trauma if it was possible to do so um would require a kind of recalibration of the whole system Many coping mechanisms and even perhaps positive ways of of relating to the world are somehow connected to the uh, historical perhaps trauma and it, and its ongoing presence in one's life. So it's something like that. Did you did you find you had to recalibrate as a person after that? With that with such a fundamental part of what was inside of you taken out, who were you after that? What was your personality like? How did you relate to people and 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 uh, did your values change, etc. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, everything fell apart. My whole life fell apart at that stage mentally. Um, I was a mess. I couldn't come back and mix with any of the people who were also angry troublemakers, really. I couldn't mix with any of them. and My life didn't make sense anymore and all of that. But uh, I think in some ways I was young enough that that wasn't really a problem. 
like, you know, if you're not old enough, or you don't have kids and a mortgage and there's life, it's not actually that much of a problem. But those kind of recalibrations, as you put it, I've had so many times on this path, you just kind of get used to them. I've been through all the crazy phases. I've been to the phase where you, you know, you suddenly realize you're the Messiah. And then a week later, you realize, oh, no, that, no I'm still an idiot. And then, and then you have the, the emotional breakdown where you can't handle the being out in the public. And then, you know, and the, I think all those things are quite normal for people that are going through a transformative process. <laughs> and as you go through them, they become easier. They become easier. But I mean, the spiritual path is, can be highly destructive for the rest of your life if you're uh, fully engaged with it, I think. What would you consider to be fully engaged? Well, for fear of putting probably, it's a good question, for fear of putting an overly simplistic answer, how important is it to you? You know, I mean, personally, I, I would never advise my level of engagement with these arts to anybody else. But I mean, I would die for my practice. That's it. If, if, if the risk was it, look, if you carry on with this, you could die or you have to stop, then I would just die. Like, that's it. That's how intense I am with, with what I do. So maybe that's an overly simple answer, but I think how important is it to you? Is it a hobby? Is it just something in the background? Is it something you try to fit in around your daily life? Or is this everything to you? And I think the further you are along that scale, uh, the more disruptive it can be, I think. <laughs> but it depends how much of a problem disruption is. Like to me, disruption doesn't matter, not for my life. I'm very careful with the people I teach, but for myself, I don't mind. Like uh, that's part of the adventure as far as I can see. I have a very gung-ho approach to these arts, though, with regards to my own practice. Self-preservation has never really been a concern, I must confess. I think if it had been, I wouldn't have traveled so much and gone into so many of the lines that I did, to be honest. Do you find yourself recalibrating, reconstituting after these, um, these sorts of experiences, these sort of breakdown experiences or do you find yourself, and this is perhaps a bit of a leading question, not needing to recalibrate or reconstitute? Are you able to operate in a kind of, as is sometimes said, a less constituted state, you know, in flux, uh, able to operate in a more chaotic, be at home more in that sort of chaotic or changeable way? Or do you find yourself breakthrough, breakdown, reconstitute, breakdown, breakthrough, reconstitute? Well, I would say, first of all, many of those things happened in my younger years and these days are a lot more gentle because i think that the shift from point a to point b sometimes is not so big sometimes is big right and and i think the bigger the shift the more problematic and certainly from some of the traumas or mental states i carried from when i was younger the shift was a bigger thing so these days are a bit more subtle i would also say that i don't really have i don't really have much of a normal life you know like i'm what am I recalibrating to? I mean, uh, I'm generally surrounded by people who are also practitioners and I'm also traveling around and moving. So it's not as if I'm going to lose my career or <laughs> my family or anything. So perhaps I don't have, maybe I'm blessed enough that in my life, I don't have the same kind of pillars that could collapse as some other people, if that makes sense. You know, my life is very fluid. Uh, so maybe according to how you explained it, yeah, maybe I'm more comfortable existing in that chaos. You know, I can't imagine me holding down a nine to five and doing this, to be honest. I think uh, I don't know how I'd manage that. <laughs> One of the pillars that comes to mind is one's sense of identity or sense of self. Oh, that doesn't matter. That should be in flux all the time anyway, shouldn't it? 
as far as I'm concerned. I mean, if you're the same person as you were six months ago, your training is not developing as far as I can see. Um, so no, I'm totally okay with that. Yeah. If I don't disagree with myself a year later, then I'm surprised. <laughs> it's often said that that kind of fluidity of sense of self or identity can be quite dis distressing for people, or it's the sort of thing, you know, it's, it's in fact seen as one of the great gateways to spiritual insight, isn't it? So you're, you're talking about it in a very sort of casual way. Is that because you're, you're just, is it a typology thing, do you think? Or are you expressing a kind of settledness in the reality of, of um, you know, what you might call the no self or, or uh, impermanence or something of that nature? Well, I think it depends where you put your attention, isn't it? Or it is for me. I mean, most of the things that would break down that would be problematic are certainly things that I would place more importance upon when I was younger, which would be what? Status, position, myself in relationship to other people, certainly what people think of me, stuff like that. I think those are a lot more important when I was younger, but I, I just don't think those part of my nature are the things where my awareness sits anymore. So all of those things can fluctuate and move around like the outside of a wheel, if you like, but the bit where I keep my awareness doesn't change quite so much. Uh, so I think that makes it more easy for me. I think that's the same for most practitioners, right? I mean, there's a shift of attention to different parts of your your being as you go through the practice. Yes. Where are you? So, where is your awareness placed now? What is the, mm. if it's not in those other things, status, sex, identity, external things of that kind, if those aren't the uh, metrics by which you find yourself, what, where is your awareness placed? With regards to my, my practice or my cultivation, it's increased on the thing that feels more constant and more spacious as I go deeper into my practice. But with regards to my outside life, because I don't think we can ever deny that there is always that thing. You still have to interact with the world. I keep it focused on my purpose as I see it and my role, my kind of responsibilities, I suppose, as a teacher. Um, constantly, uh, with regards to the outer layers of my mind, I guess, a constant self-analysis and self-scrutiny to make sure that I feel I'm still fulfilling the purpose I'm supposed to fulfill and the obligation I have to the people that teach me. That gives that part of my mind more, my awareness more entertained than power, sex, money, blah, 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 status, trivia, whatever, I don't know. Um, but the part of me that I try to stay with is the bit that increasingly feels constant and spacious, I would say, but I don't want to put a word upon it. Some people will call it soul. Some people call it true self or whatever. To me, all those terms are a bit irrelevant. Why are they irrelevant? Well, because I think nobody agrees on the definition. I think that's part of a problem. The problem with all those kinds, if we don't have a shared definition, I mean, if you use the word car to mean something and I use the word car to mean something completely different, we, we can't use the word car. It doesn't. So I think once you get past psychology, mind, thoughts, emotion, after that, it becomes very, very tricky. Um, you know, just like when you go to see a teacher, I, I never believed in taking with me the definition I'd read in books, whether they were classical texts or direct words of Buddha himself. doesn't matter. I, I had to learn how that teacher in particular was using that term, because that's really the only thing that matters. And even if I, that definition didn't match anything on the outside, that's how they're using the term. So for me, once you get past mind and psychology, it becomes very difficult to even use the shared language if you get what I mean. Unless we're within the same school and tradition and we're, you know, we're using the same terminology, it's very tricky. 
That's very interesting. You know, I've heard you talk about alchemy before as being a very powerful process, which can enhance whichever states are inside, positive or negative. And you hinted at that earlier in the interview, actually. So I'm really curious about alchemy, which is your main practice now, and how it is that that can go in different directions, how to keep it on track, etc. And, you know, what is it? I mean, a lot of people will have heard something of it, but it's not, I don't think, very widely known, really. Alchemy, particularly, uh, alchemy, you mean, not so widely, yes. I, Alchemy, I think, is one of the least understood uh, meditation systems from the East. I mean, the example I always give is if you go into an alternative bookshop, the yoga and Buddhist section is like three walls big, right? Especially if you're going to sound like Watkins in London. There's just books everywhere on Buddhism. And then Taoism's a little tiny uh, pocket tucked away in the corner. Most of it's about sexual practice, to be honest. But there's like one or two books on alchemy and also the I guess you call it twilight language, I suppose, is a general term, isn't it, that they use to describe alchemy. doesn't really make it that um, approachable as an art. So I think it is very, very misunderstood, alchemy, yeah. Certainly I did. All the ideas I had of alchemy were completely smashed once I uh, encountered alchemy teachers, because I thought it was like Jing Chi Shen and something like that, and then there's a golden light, and then you leave your body or something. And, to actually find out it was a far more complicated and intricate system. Even the definitions of Jing Chi and Shen, essence, energy, and spirit were completely different from what I had encountered prior to that. But then you also have the problem that Chuanzhen or, or Longmen Pai is probably the, yeah, it's probably the most common alchemy system you will encounter in, in Asia. And that's very, very mixed in with Chan Buddhism anyway. So that there's already a integration of the of the two systems and Chan Buddhism apologies to Chan practitioners is a is a it's not pure Buddhism by any stretch of the imagination it's already been modified by the Chinese quite extensively and there's various theories as to why isn't there so it's a it's quite a mixed bag um, when you encounter it Chinese are quite pragmatic I will say they don't mind putting together a tradition as long as they can align them with each other be yeah, alchemy Sorry, you were asking what alchemy was. Alchemy is, um, to me, comes before Buddhist meditation. Sometimes people would think it comes after, like it's something more advanced and mysterious. To me, it's not. It comes before. It, 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 where it goes is often quite similar to where Buddhist practices end up with regards to the, the insight work around the levels of uh, the nature of mind and self and whatever you want to put that term on but before that is a whole somatic process um, that i think is often missing in many meditation systems and for me i needed that i needed a way in um, which alchemy provided then it kind of veers off a little bit into another direction when you start talking about immortality but those kind of things are so far away i don't really concern myself with them so alchemy to me is certainly in the beginning a uh, a way of transforming the way that the body functions um, on lots of levels, increasingly subtle levels, until it just functions as a far more efficient system for meditative practice. Now, some people would not like that definition because they're more interested in the sort of out there stuff, light body, golden elixir and things like that. But again, I think those things are so far away that I think people are focused on the wrong end of the practice. It's what it does for the body that's really quite amazing. Um, it has a lot of connections with Tantra, obviously, with um, uh, Tantra with regards to using energies within the body, um, even chemicals. I mean, the hormonal system is transformed through our chemical training as well. 
that I, I think actually, if a lot of people could engage with alchemy in the West, I think they would find it made many other meditation systems much easier to engage with, um, which I think is its strong point uh, very much. Hmm. Could you tell the story of, of how you became aware of alchemy and began to train in it? And perhaps along the way, give some indication of what it is one does when one practices alchemy. Yeah, sure. I mean, <laughs> the first time I heard of alchemy was Western alchemy, because I grew up near Glastonbury, which uh, Glastonbury has all kinds of, I'm sure you've been there at some stage, it's, it's a kind of a center for what you call it, hermetics and Alistair Crowley and Golden Dawn and all that kind of stuff. Um, so my idea of alchemy is really from there anyway. So I kind of thought they were akin with each other. Increasingly, I found that actually Chinese and Western alchemy have nothing to do with each other and no similarities at all. And that to me, that then there's no parallels. You can almost just kind of disregard them. They just happen to have the same name, I guess, in English. So I thought that was what alchemy was. And then after that, um, with a Buddhist teacher I had, all I ever heard was Taoists were evil. That was all I was told. Don't go near Taoists. Taoists are evil. They'll steal your jing and turn into demons or something like that. I don't know. So I was always a bit nervous of Taoists. Um, and then when I got to China, one of the... Um, people that I was doing Tai Chi with had a kind of vague interest in alchemy, so sort of early stages. So I started to engage with that a little bit. It was only quite rudimentary, nothing against the teacher. His Tai Chi was exceptional. His alchemy was very basic, but at the time it was enough to stoke my interest. And then gradually I just met, sort of got introduced in through the Long Menpai, few dead ends there with some of the modern contemporary versions of it. And then gradually I got led into that practice. I got invited in the end to join them on a five-year solitary retreat, um, which I turned down at the time. It was going to be sort of locked away, but I, I really got very involved in their systems. And then alchemy became my main interest. So even now the main teacher I study with is, uh, is an alchemist. So alchemy has um, a lot of seated work, as most meditation systems do. It's quite... Um, rigorous, I would say. Some of the kind of more friendly versions of meditation, you know, these 20 minutes kind of sit, it doesn't exist in alchemy, actually it's quite intense. Something that I know would suit you, because I've seen online, you've got some uh, three hour meditation sits, which for many people would, would seem like hell on earth, right? To sit for three hours. But uh, yeah, there's lengthy sits in, in alchemy practice, especially because you have certain rhythms in the body that need to actually kind of work through and those rhythms aren't particularly fast. Chi doesn't move quick. So there's a lot to do with that. And it's very much integrated with a system called Nagong, which to me is an extrapolation out of Nadan, out of alchemy. Um, and the Dantian obviously is a, an absolutely massive factor for alchemy. That is another one of the most misunderstood parts of Chinese arts for me. The, the Dantian is like, it's key. You know, anybody who practices alchemy in Qigong um, the Dantian really is a thing they need to understand. And I increasingly found it was a thing that I'd been misled on massively uh, when I got into, into our chemical practice. And uh, yeah, that's been one of my missions, really. If I had any mission, it was to try to get people to understand how that part of the body system works uh, in the West, the Dantian. Lots of breath work. <laughs> the Dantian is often thought of as a, a pre-existing energy mm. structure, pre-existing as in you don't have to make it a bit like a chakra. It's sort of like Taoist chakra, right? Uh, I know 
that's that's not your view. Can you uh, give us a sense of some of the ways in which you were misled about the Dantian and how it was you discovered the real way of working with this this Dantian? Sure. I mean, it's definitely what most people would consider a little bit more esoteric, my view on it. Um, but to me, it, something's only esoteric if you're not used to it. To me, it's quite down to earth. But yeah, you, you already kind of hit the nail on the head there. The Dantian is not something you start with. Definitely not. You might have had a little bit of a accumulation in that area as a kid. Um, but if you pass puberty, there's there's nothing there. Like it's not, it's on the area. So you can almost think of the Dantian as needing installing, like putting in place. You have to, to build it within the abdomen. And it's a very specific way of doing that. Um, it doesn't take that long. It just takes the correct method. And then the Dantian needs filling, which is um, another whole process to do with yin and yang qi and how they combine within the body. So you have a, a mix of methods to do this, breathwork methods and even postural methods within some Qigong systems. But uh, often you need a little bit of assistance from a teacher as well. Like there's a direct transmissive aspect of, um, of Dantian development as, as well. You know, and, and I'd encountered this idea of the Dantian from, well, even from Japanese arts there, the Hara is obviously equated with it, but I don't think the Hara and the Dantian are the same thing, actually. I think there's a slight different use of the terminology. But then, uh, you know, <laughs> I'd been in Qigong systems where you're supposed to be packing Qi into the, the Dantian and then discovered later on that actually that Dantian didn't exist. I was trying to pack something that wasn't there into something that didn't exist. So then there was a whole process of trying to um, learn how to how to develop the Dantian afterwards. It's to do with, uh, without making it too long-winded and dull, but it, I'm very, uh, it's very much my kind of interest for beginners to develop this, is uh, you need the outer shell there, which really is a magnetic field that needs to build inside the abdomen. It needs coalescing and, and gathering. And then to fill it is to put largely an electrical substance, a bioelectrical substance into that space. So it's, uh, it's quite a weirdly mechanical, I suppose, in a way, but it comes with very, very clear markers and clear signs. And then this becomes used as a, a kind of battery or a power cell for everything we do. So one thing that meditators often find interesting, that I, one thing I found fascinating as well, that often when you go into a state, say you enter into a meditative state, okay, uh, meditative, very absorbed or unified state or whatever, or maybe you could say jhana or samadhi in this period. And then you end up in it for a period of time and then you kind of get chucked out, right? That's what happens. You kind of get thrown out of that state and you don't always know why, you know, like sometimes there's a distraction or it, time's up, you know, like come in number nine, time's up, like you're out. But the funny thing is you realize that the Dantian, how full it is, can sustain that state. So the actual fullness of the Dantian actually empowers it. So once you enter into a meditative state, if the Dantian is very full, it sustains it for increasingly longer time, for hours and hours and hours and hours until the Dantian runs out of juice and then you get popped out of it. So I don't know personally if that applies to all people or is that just kind of a mechanism that turns up once the Dantian is built? I'm not sure entirely, but it's certainly a major component of our chemical practice. And I've said that to people before, and they thought, that sounds strange. And then they build it anti and then they find, oh, yeah, that's the case, actually. <laughs> you can use it to support that meditative training. Mm. And what, what's the purpose of the breath work and the postural work? I mean, I think alchemy, perhaps due to associations with the Western uh, you know, tradition, if we can call it that, uh, um, 
has to do with transformation fundamentally, right? Led into gold, that sort of idea. Um, that's maybe a superficial association when one thinks of an alchemist, you know. Is transformation a key part? Is that what's going on there? Is there some sort of transformation? What's the role of the breath and, and the postural? We have the battery here, this cultivation of the battery. And then presumably one uses that to power a certain certain activities, processes, or, or, or uh, yeah. So how does it, how does it fit together? Are, are we getting now into kind of secret territory? No, no, I don't mind. I'm always in trouble for revealing more than I should. I mean, for me, postural, the postural work is because you need to drop your center from the chest to the abdomen, which is um, a lot harder than people think, actually, or more of an engaged process, because it's not due to do literal posture. So if, for example, I were to open into a horse stance or drop like a sumo wrestle into a low position, your center is still in your chest. It doesn't make a difference. It's not your kind of postural gravity in that sense. So a lot of the posture is to do with creating more space inside the rib cage and releasing the diaphragm till something actually moves down and you feel it inside, like something magnetic starts to move down into this area. And then that starts to draw the, the Dantianian sort of posture is used for that. Once you've got to that stage, the posture is not actually that important, to be perfectly honest. Like it's not such a major thing. The posture is just that key. And then your breath after that becomes um, a major component of the practice because it's using the breath in specific ways that actually builds to inside the Dantian. So we have a whole, I guess, very akin to pranayamic practice um, in alchemy with a whole series of breathing techniques that, that pull this energy into the Dantian. But it all becomes kind of pointless in that Sedantian is actually there in the first place <laughs> to put it in. Yeah, so breath work is not used like, um, you know, for passion or something in the, in the same way. It's more of a, it is more akin to pranayamic practice to actually biomechanically change the energy production in the body, the way the cells function, the way the hormonal system functions, produce the amrita inside, to chemically change the body. Um, and then that side of it is combined with the mental work that is more similar to most meditation systems i would say and the two come together to create uh, the alchemy so your body becomes uh, the cauldron as they call it and then uh, what is put into the cauldron if you like is the ingredients of your mental quality and then the ingredients of your body transformation you come through the breath work and other energetic practice uh, i would say hmm. Most people would say, yes, it's about transformation. Why? Like you, like you said, I have a slightly different way of defining it, but it's a personal definition, which to me, it's just efficiency. Like I would say that poor health is a less efficiently functioning body. Good health is more efficiently functioning. And everybody is given a certain set of parameters when you're born, right? Like a certain degree of health. It's like you have a set of cards you're playing with and we can only ever get our health to its maximum we're given but alchemy can take it further. So it's about increasing the efficiency of the body's functioning and then the mind's functioning and then the nervous system and all of the different levels. And then the more efficiently the body functions through our chemical training, the easier the other work is um, as much as anything. Certainly mental work is a lot easier. So it sounds like this alchemical, this alchemy um, is not limited to Maybe this is a wrong way of thinking about it. It's, it's sort of enlightenment uh, or awakening or um, realization, however we would want to say that. Uh, but it has many other benefits too, this efficiency, maybe uh, health, uh, you know, et cetera. What relationship does that have to enlightenment as we might think of it in the, in the Buddhist sense? I know from your biography, um, 
you know, you, you said here, he was initiated into several traditions, though now he focuses primarily on representing teachings from within the northern Taoist sects and an esoteric line of Chinese Buddhism. Do these two systems have any kind of relationship in terms of the spiritual aspect? Is there a sense of enlightenment? Is, you know, we're going for the same thing the Buddhists are going for by a different view, or is it, is it something else? Yeah, it, there, there's a similar point. There is um, the same idea of, of liberation um, within both traditions, but a different way into it. So obviously you can't say Buddhist practice is a particular thing because there's so many different types, Vajrayana and Theravada, all that kind of thing. But if we say that Buddhist practice is very much about perhaps insight, like stabilization of mind and insight into the, the nature of something, that would be um, one wing or one branch or one path of the, of the Taoist methods, very much akin to what the Tao Te Ching was talking about. So yeah, Tao Te Ching is more about that kind of way of training. But alchemical is different. Alchemical is a path of increasing the efficiency of the body and the mind's functioning until it comes to the same realization. So the funny thing is, it's almost like cheating. You know, it's like uh, I can use my mind to, or my awareness to try to understand the nature of self and achieve some kind of liberation. Or I can go in the back end of the computer and fiddle around and move some chips around and type in some code. And hopefully my system becomes efficient enough that I come to that realization anyway which in some ways is kind of akin to some of the yogic paths, as far as I can see it, they work in a similar fashion. So my view of alchemy is like, well, if there's a goal I'm going for and there's uh, two ways to get there as opposed to one, then maybe I've doubled my chances. <laughs> that's maybe a little bit of a rudimentary way to look at it, but that's how I see it. The only space they deviate in is I would say that Buddhism wants full liberation from that kind of samsaric cycle or snuff out the candle or however people want to say it. Taoists, well, I mean, I have a very good friend who's Buddhist um, who always says Taoists are too clinging, which I agree. There is a certain degree of clinging in, in Taoism, but they don't want to snuff out that candle. They're more inclined to try to consolidate uh, spirit until it can kind of exist independently from the body. So at that stage, you have a kind of divide. And I think that's where the paths split off in different directions, to be honest. I'm more in line with what the Buddhists are trying to do um, personally. So I, for me, I tend to teach alchemy. But these days, my practice is more in line with what the Chan <laughs> teachers are trying to get me to do, to be perfectly honest. But I think that alchemy is such an uh, uh, efficient practice for people for a long time that it tends to be what I share publicly. That's very interesting, consolidating the spirit so that it can exist independently of the body. Immortality, um, right? Right. Could you yeah. say something a, a bit more about that? Uh, well, theoretically, but I mean, I've not done it <laughs> because it also involves death of the physical body, right? Um, so hopefully I don't manage that anytime soon. But yeah, I mean, the idea is that the, the spirit is fed with enough, whatever you want to call it, chi or essence, that it can exist independently. So you have different levels of immortals, earthly immortals and heavenly immortals. They're all different gradations of these things that can be achieved from alchemy. A lot of people don't believe in it, funnily enough. They think that when you read Chinese classics that it's metaphorical for something. So it's amazing how many scholars would say, oh, immortality means moksha or something like this, but actually, no, they, my experience is they're quite literal. They mean something that exists independently of the physical form after death. And in some traditions, they aim to preserve the physical body for crazy lengths of time. So 
maybe you could not say immortal, but very, very old would be something they try to do. That doesn't tend to be a long men thing, but some other Taoist traditions and some other alchemical traditions aim for that as well. So it's quite curious. It all gets very um, bizarre at that level of the practice um, to me, but still very um, academic because I'm working on a much lower level <laughs> myself than those mm. kind of things. Have you met any individuals who you who have convinced you or at least given you reasonable cause to suspect that they might have, a, have achieved this? Someone you might have met who's extended their body's lifespan by a really remarkable degree or some other kind of grade of immortal that you've been discussing. Have you ever encountered anyone um, of that type? Yes. Yeah, I have. I've had various um, unusual experiences at certain times within certain traditions um, that aren't, how could you say it? They're not 100% proof of that particular thing, you know, but they're so far in that direction that you end up thinking, well, why would I believe this, but not this? It seems very strange that if a tradition can prove nine things to you, you disbelieve the 10th. You know, it, it seems very odd to me. I, my brain doesn't work that way. Um, so yeah, I would say so. Yeah, but it's not a personal goal of mine, uh, something like that. It, it's not, I don't tend to look to the future in that way. I'm just quite happy working at where I'm working and where it ends up, it ends up, you know, but yeah, for sure. Hmm. To me, these are all very literal, all very potential things. Human potential is way lower than it could be, is how I see it. And I think that uh, in the general day and age, I think the goalposts could be moved a bit further than where we think they are. I think. Would you be willing to recount any of those stories? <laughs> I'm wondering whether I'm crossing lines here. I'm not so sure. I mean, I can talk about it more vaguely, talk about it more vaguely. And that, uh, for example, I mean, city is something that you mentioned earlier, right? Um, I'm sure people who listen to your podcast know what city are. I mean, those are a very literal thing that demonstrates level of competence uh, within a tradition. And those city can be very, very stark and very, very bizarre when someone gets to a particular stage. And they were never meant to be sort of flounced around on YouTube, like unfortunately sometimes they have in some traditions these days, but they were supposed to be something that a teacher would use to demonstrate to close inner door students that they had reached a certain level because those city were recorded as being a marker of something. When these channels are open, this will happen. When the consciousness has this particular level of crystallization, this city will arise. So it was a way for a teacher to prove, uh, kind of like a Tai Chi person here with the Fajin to show they have the mechanism inside if you want, but just a bit further down the line. And there are city or markers that go along with um, states of realization and being close to spiritual immortality. Um, so if the recordings of the city are in line with the levels they are supposed to be at, then yes. I hope that's not too general an answer. Uh, does that make sense? Okay. Well, yes, you you can only answer at the level that you feel you're able to, you know, with respecting privacy and etc. Yeah, I understand that. Um, what are some of these city? Assuming a person has, you know, knows what knows the basic idea of city, but in in those traditions, what are we talking about here? Which city are are correlated to which levels? What what, what would one expect to see in this sort of a situation? Well, I. I the ones I can talk about, the ones you will openly see. I think that's fair. If it's already been revealed to the public, I can talk about it. So I think that's okay. So obviously the electrokinesis and pyrokinesis is quite well known these days. If you do a 
uh, a cursory look on social media because everybody's got a bloody mobile phone these days. So these things get recorded and these get filmed. Although I will say that nine out of 10 examples of pyrokinesis and electrokinesis is the word, isn't it? Issue in the electricity that you see online are not real because I'm familiar with most of the teachers that are doing the demonstrations, but some of them are real. Um, and then beyond that, there's all kinds of perception-based city that I probably shouldn't talk about because they're not already available online, but I'm happy to talk about the ones so I hope that's okay, but I'm happy to talk about the ones that are revealed already on social media, like the electricity and the fire, which are markers of the Dantian and the energy system hitting a certain level of competence. Uh, so, but that would be uh, like when somebody's hit those, they're doing pretty good already, you know? <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh, you know, in, in the Buddhist um, texts, hmm. city are, um, are, you know, listed some certain buddhist texts are listed in a similar way um sure. you know, the, as, a, as a certain stage of development clairvoyance clairaudience etc or ability to be in two places at once uh, this sort of thing uh memory of past lives or uh, memory of others past lives these sorts of things are recorded and i mean i don't i don't know if they're on youtube probably not <laughs> buddhist you know don't know if they're on youtube with the buddhist or maybe on my podcast i mean i've had i have had guests many guests actually yeah. that claim directly or indirectly, you know, as, as it's done, to um, have those city or at least have seen them. So this has been so fascinating, uh, Demo. Thank you. Happy. Uh, yeah, really amazing. Is there anything that we haven't covered yet that is crucial to cover, given what we've discussed so far? I know there's a much, much more we could talk about. You've written 10 books and you have online courses and a lot of depth to what you've done. We've, we've really barely scratched the surface. But given what we've said so far, is there anything else that's perhaps crucial to, to, to discuss at this stage? Um, the only thing I, I would emphasize um, a little bit more maybe is morality that I think is a more important part maybe of spiritual systems. Maybe that's not such an interesting thing to ask about. I'm not sure. That's the only other thing that's a major part of what I do. Morality, I would say. Actually, that's really interesting to me. So like that would be very <laughs> cool. I get asked about the least. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. So important. Especially with these sorts of, um, in fact, you can't escape it, it seems. The deeper you go, the more that stuff becomes of, of really critical importance. And uh, I think, certainly with this alchemy stuff, you know, I've heard you talk about powering up. And if you're you know, driving the car in the wrong direction, you just crash faster and that's a disaster. I mean, I don't know about that, the powering up stuff, but certainly from the little bit of practice I've done, confronted with the uh, stark need to get that sorted out is, is a real thing. So. So maybe we could talk about that. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that uh, you can you can divide one way. They often divide our chemical practice or or Taoist traditions up is into something called Xing and Ming, um, and people would define that many different ways. But to me, my personal definition is that Ming is often attributed to your life path as well as your physical development and and things like this. So most of the methods that we've discussed, Dantian building and alchemy and sitting and breathing would really be within the Ming section of the training. And what that does is build Qi and transform the body and maybe lead to greater levels of insight. But the other side of it is Xing, which is your nature. And to the Taoists, uh, especially in Northern traditions, those two must come together. They must be unified. So Xing means your, your nature and without going into sort of more esoteric sides of it, the most basic level of it is morality or, or virtue, um, which is an absolutely massive part of Taoist training. 
And I think, unfortunately, um, another one of those aspects that's not discussed uh, a great deal, ethics and morality. So I think that if somebody, you can develop your energetic system and your body without working on any morality, of course, like that's possible. Um, but it's not a good route for you. It's also not a good route for the people you teach. It's not a good route for your school if you end up going down that path. Um, so one thing that's always been very, very important for the people who teach me is morality and ethics and how you do what you do. So for example, if I go to see my teacher now, my current teacher, maybe I go see him for, well, on average about three days and I spend three days with him, right? Day one and two, all we do is discuss morality. That's it. So what I normally what happens is we go through all of the things I've done, the things I've done in my relationships, the things I've done in my school, the things I've done in my work or whatever. And we kind of break it down and, and he discusses in horribly scrutinizing and I would say blunt levels of detail, all of the things I've done wrong and the incorrect motives and the, the imbalances and the power struggles involved in what I've done. And we break all that down and, and, and try to improve it. And then on day three, we practice together and that's it. So we have two days of moral discussion and one day on practice. And I think as much as anything, I've been with this guy for 10 years now, that that's the biggest lesson to me from him as much as anything is how much emphasis is put onto that side of the, the practice. So I would say that um, if we're gonna highlight anything, I think that's also important. I'm a highly ruthlessly critical well, I'm a ruthless critic of myself um, with regards to why I do things. And also everything I do, I run past a group of people that I kind of use as an advisory board, if you like. And then also I run it past the supervision of my teacher as well to discuss morality. And I think that's a really important part of any spiritual tradition. I always have like red flags when I meet someone who's on their own, you know, doesn't have a supervisor, doesn't have someone who's overseeing their behavior because we're often very blinded to our motives for things. So I, I think probably if you're gonna add anything else, I don't think we should avoid, I, th I think we should include the importance of morality. So they're a dodgy bunch, aren't they, historically? Let's be honest. The Taoists, do you say? They have been, yeah. Yeah, why do you think so many sexual practices come out of Taoism generally because it suits the male teachers, to be honest, you know? <laughs> well, gosh, that's that's a can of worms. Um, could Could you, would you be willing to share a representative example of that kind of moral inquiry with your teacher? And what are the means of overcoming it? I mean, reflecting on where you've gone astray from some kind of a standard is sometimes enough to bring one into line, but other times our behaviors are more deeply rooted than that. And to just simply become a better person by discussion is remarkable if it can be achieved. So what, what are the, what's the standard? Can you, can you give, just by way of explaining, a representative example of not meeting that and also how you'd correct it in this system yeah totally i mean uh on a really basic level you have precepts just like any tradition that you beginners will encounter precepts and certainly when you become in the door that you have to follow you don't have a choice you can't do this you do this so they're, they're very black and white there's no problem there if you break those you get kicked out so they're very simple like and they're not, uh, not that different lying cheating stealing the the kind of obvious and then depending upon the tradition that list can get kind of big and but the, you know to me they're not rocket science i mean i i personally believe that all humans do know inherently innately how we should act i mean i think 
that's why we have a conscience. That's why most of us feel guilty all the time because we feel guilty because we've broken some rule we know inherently we shouldn't be doing. I think that's all there. That, so that's kind of the basic level of it. Um, I'm a great believer in that human beings already know how to act. But then the level above that, I think that if you, I think what's important, no, I shouldn't say that. What's been important for me, because I don't know what's important for someone else, I can only talk about me, is that out of all the teachers I had, they were very good, very good at this practice, very good at that practice, but it took a long time before I had a teacher that had the level of insight to honestly touch upon the motive for something. Like this is the motive for why this happened. Now, I think that it's very hard for us to do that ourselves because if you've done something, you might say it's because of this, but actually, well, rule of causation probably came from this and this and this and this and this and a long way back. And, and then sometimes you get, to, well, that's because of the trauma. Well, actually, I still think the trauma is just an expression. Like, I think you can go deeper. I think traumas are still quite surface level. Like there's many, many reasons. And I think that if we try to identify the root cause ourselves, we get it wrong. And if you put your attention on the wrong thing, nothing changes. That's my opinion, because you're looking at the wrong thing. So sometimes when you have a teacher that just has that level of perception and insight, that when they point out the true motive, your level of engagement and realization with what they've pointed at kind of dissolves its power anyway, or that's my experience of it. So having somebody give that clarity is what creates the potential for change. The only thing I would say that's a fluid within that is you really have to find yourself funny. And I don't mean like sense of humor or something like that, but the, the ludicrousness of the very fact that you have those seeds for those motivations has to be fairly amusing to you. It almost has to be an apathy to your own self-importance to a certain extent for this process to work. I don't know if I can explain it any more than that, but that's kind of my personal experience of working with someone. So every time I go to see the teachers and we go through this process and then they point that out and you get like, oh God, I've been a fucking idiot again, whatever. And then that power is broken down and then I notice a shift uh, in the way that I do things. And for me, running a school that is pretty big, I mean, never, never my aim, but just, just keeps growing. No one leaves. They all join and they don't leave. I need more people to leave. So there's like a turnover and it stays a certain size, but it gets bigger. I think because of the position I'm in, it's very important to me to have a person that's able to do that for me, because otherwise I would be frightened of um, messing up and doing the wrong thing. So maybe I can't give a more satisfactory answer, but that's my experience of how that process works. It's amazing when someone points to the truth, how it just becomes blatantly obvious to you, <laughs> and then it loses its power. You mentioned sex and Taoism, of course, is associated with sex yeah. in a sort of similar way that Tantra is associated with sex. Perhaps that's due to popularizers such as Mantak Chia, who, you know, the multi-orgasmic man and the multi-orgasmic uh, woman and couple and so on. That, I think, has certainly penetrated into popular awareness. You said that certain this emphasis on sex might be somewhat serving the male practitioners. Um, I'm curious if you could say a little bit about something about the, the role of sex in Taoism and, and what do you mean by that comment? It, it, <laughs> I will answer it. It's the one that gets me in the most trouble. Out of everything I say, this is the one that is two things you can't question in a person's life, what they eat and their sex life. You can't question either of those or you get all kinds of trouble. That's why people argue over diets and they argue over this. But in my view, sexual practice is like scraping the bottom of the spiritual bar barrel. It's like the lowest of the low. Um, 
and that's often an unpopular view. But if someone holds a, a different view, I'm, I'm totally happy with that view either. I'm not trying to change it, it's just how I view it. And I think with regards to sexual practice, there's a, there's actually a very small percentage of texts that actually discussed it. And often they're mixed together. And we actually, <laughs> it's funny. I got asked over and over again, I digress a little, to do a course on dual cultivation, on sexual practice. And I was like, no, no, no. And then eventually I was like, okay, sure, I did it. So I did a day long course on sexual practice and then people turned up and what I give them was a seven hour history lesson on why sexual practice was irrelevant. Uh, and that's what I did. So you can actually look at historical development of the writings and Taoism has incorporated a mix of what they call pillow books where a new bride have no idea what's gonna happen on the wedding night. So that pillow was under the, the book was under the pillow and they're like, oh my God, that's gonna happen. And then you have a sort of another layer after that where there's a few other stages, but essentially um, nobles and emperors and monarchs were trying to understand how to achieve enlightenment. And they didn't want to sit in a cave for hours and hours. So they wanted to use something that was appealing to them. So they kind of absorbed some tantric teachings from India and kind of mix it in and basically use something that was satisfactory to them, sexual energy in order to convert uh, their essence in the spirit, but it was a complete deviation. Like almost all alchemists that I've met would say it's an irrelevance and it's not an important part of the tradition. And even if someone could draw the energy from that place, so you could do that, right? It's a very risky thing to do, like to engage with the lowest, most attachment-based part of your mind and extract energy from that for spiritual development seems risky to me. It's like going to the if you want to use the chakra model, if you want right to the opposite end of where we're trying to go and trying to use that to fuel things. Personally, I think there's a certain degree of energy and development from separating our attachment from that side of our nature first um, and then deriving our source of energy from somewhere else. And I certainly would say that that viewpoint is agreed with amongst most of the alchemy teachers uh, that I've had. So if you look at a lot of the sexual writings, they're about health. They're mostly about health. That's really what they're about. This even down to the extent of this position for bad back <laughs> and stuff like that. They're all kinds of medical things. I don't really see them as cultivational things. But where I live in Ubud, Bali, that is not a popular view. Trust me, because <laughs> that's what most people here are practicing. Hmm. That's my take on it. And yeah. with regard to benefiting people, yeah, I think that if a male runs a large group of a school with a lot of people, generally the sexual practice school, if we're totally honest, normally end up with the teacher sleeping with a lot of the students. That's usually what happens. And it comes out a bit further down, that's what's been going on. So I think that it's often used for that kind of justification. Having lived on Koh Phangan in Thailand, and then Ubud, Bali, like I, I've been around many of these kinds of schools, at Glastonbury, even when I was younger, I always end up in really hippie-ish places. Yeah, maybe I should change that. But yeah, I've seen that pattern a lot. So I'm, I'm not a fan of those kind of practices anyway, personally. Very interesting. Very interesting indeed. Thank you. Well, this has been so great. How did you navigate the language barrier in these situations? That's really my last question. I, I, it's just a sort of personal interest of mine. Sure, but I learned Chinese when I was out there. Um, I will say my grammar always sucked. Measuring words in China, just whatever. But I got myself to I was understandable. Um, but then as I gravitated towards Southeast Asia, it became a lot easier because English is a more widely spoken language down there. I will say as well with Chinese, it was really annoying because I was always told, well, first of all, you need Chinese. When, when I first got to China, 
I couldn't, I couldn't even ask directions or something, so I had to learn. So it was very useful for introductions. But I have to say that even when I could speak Chinese, I was never told anything mechanical or method-based that you couldn't already get in English. Like it was very strange. It's not really like they could give minor adjustments, but it wasn't like there was any great secrets that you couldn't access in the English language. And I think partially just because, fair enough, different because the teacher was teaching you in person, you need the Chinese to communicate. But actually a lot of things, I mean, have already been written down. It's quite amazing how much has been extracted and already put into classical texts and things. So learning Chinese wasn't even the most useful thing I did. If I could go back in time, I'd have learned Sanskrit. Like that, that would have been my choice. I think that would have given access to things or, or Pali that were not so accessible in English personally. Um, but these days I don't need it so much. So my Chinese is um, very rusty to say the least. So I avoid speaking it as much as I can, especially around Chinese people because they just laugh at my pronunciations these days. Um, and I guess these days I need Indonesian more than anything else because of where I am. Mm, yeah, fascinating. Well, this has been great. Uh, where can people find you if they want to uh, learn more or perhaps study with you? Oh, they can find me online. I'm, uh, I always awkward around uh, marketing and advertising. I, I don't like to. So people, if they want to do what, to find me, they can find me. Google. <laughs> Google. Okay, great. Well, Damo Mitchell, thank you very much. No, thank you, Steve. Very nice chat with you. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.